We've got a Hobie Baker winner and the newest member of the Toronto Maple Leafs organization, Dryden McKay, this week. Plus, it's true, Woody. We've got more new gear, and there are at least 20.2 reasons to stick around for that as well. Welcome to the In Goal Radio podcast presented by the Hockey Shop Source for Sports and thehockeyshop.com. This is episode 168. I'm David Hutchison, and I'm here again with playoff shutout king Kevin Woodley. Kevin, good to see you again, buddy. I'm happy to be here, especially if you keep introducing me like that. I just, I mean, I've only got one in my life, but I'm happy to keep touting it. That's like when Elliot Friedman calls me the goalie whisperer, my whole beer league team just cringes at the idea that, (laughs) yeah, sure. The only whispering I do is uh, to myself in the crease while plucking pucks out. But for one game, I did not have to. Atta boy. Okay, I think uh, I think we need to be transparent with our listeners this week and explain why we're recording this podcast just a couple of days after the last one. And it's possible there might be a few things we say that uh, will be a bit out of date when we publish this in maybe five days. Yeah, I'm going away. I'm going golfing. I'm going to Bandon Dunes. Bucket list golf trip with a good group of guys, many of whom I play hockey with, um, either on my beer league team or through a couple of other weekly skates I take part in. Um, the whole nine yards, chartered plane, private plane down to Oregon coast bus in like 20 plus guys, um, six rounds of golf in four days and fly home gone Thursday, come back Sunday. I will be one tired boy by the time I get back, have been to the range twice, have not played around this year, but we're going to, uh, get it kicked off with a whole bunch of golf in a very short period of time. And I could not be more excited. Attaboy. The one thing I would rather do than go golfing in Oregon, I'm packing up the Prius. I'm driving six hours up the Coquihalla to Kelowna to pick up my daughter from university after being away for a year. So pretty cool. Um, listen, our feature guest this week, guys, is uh, presented by Sensorina as always. And I assume he's been named after my favorite goaltender growing up and the man who has an honored place in your arm, Woody. Uh, Dryden McKay just inked his first pro contact with the Toronto Maple Leafs organization. But uh, just before we get to Dryden McKay, I think not everybody knows that before Kevin was a world-famous goalie journalist, goalie whisperer, he was a golf writer. And uh, Woody, we've spoken often about the parallels between golf and goaltending, and it would seem that this week with, uh, you know, a number of NHL teams concluding their seasons and heading for the golf course along with you and with your bucket list trip, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how the trip might help your team on the ice and how hitting the links can be a lot like standing in the crease. We talk a lot about the parallels between golf and goaltending on this show, and we've talked a lot about it with a lot of our guests over the years. I guess the one thing that it for me that it has in common is I suck at both. Um, so you liar. There's probably some, you know, because there's a mental component, and I am not exactly the most mentally strong guy in the world. So maybe that's why. Um, you know, I have done a fair bit of writing uh, in a past life before I became you know, sort of committed to goaltending as a, as a career and as a passion did do a lot of travel writing, covered PGA tournament events here in Canada. Uh, used to, to make the trip down for the, um, the, the annual sort of winners only event in Maui to cover that and write features off of that. Cause the access was so good. Uh, wrote a chapter of a book with, uh, Dick Zokel at one point. He's since turned it into an app rather than a book. Like we sort of started, the path down a book. And, um, you know, that was actually edited and looked at by guys like Mike Weir. And I think even Vijay Singh took a look at it. And so again, a, a, an idea that was focused on mental performance and being a, able to sort of 
approach. It was a, a technique that, that Dick Sokol, who was on the PGA Tour, um, was famous for wearing headphones and listening to a Walkman on the PGA Tour. They called no him dis- Disco Dick during his PGA Tour days. Um, was, was a way of sort of basically a formula for taking it one shot at a time, a program to train your brain to have a one-shot mentality and execution. And that's what we... I mean, how many times have I asked a goaltender about, you know, next shot, next save mentality being the easiest thing to say and the hardest thing to do? And I think, to me, that's the one parallel between the two sports. Um, You're kind of on your own back there a little bit, but also that ability to forget the past, not forecast the future, and just stay in the moment and execute is so easy to say and so hard to do. You get a good round going, you start thinking about how you're going to finish, inevitably as soon as you like i've i i got a buddy hopefully he's listening right now and remembers the moment he said as we made the turn and he had like the best front nine of his life today's the day i break 90 and he was like saying shout out exactly just drove himself right off a cliff on the back nine so it's like you know (laughs) there are so many parallels mentally i think between the two and i think you are a little isolated out there it's just you and the ball and sometimes it can feel even though you're a part of a team and dependent on how they play like you're almost playing a different sport within the sport as a goaltender. So yeah, there's, you know, I mean, that's, that's a theme that's come up over the years on this show with a lot of different guys. The the other one that I like that we've talked about before that I think is really important coaches out there listening who in between periods come and scream at the goaltender. We need more from you. The idea that they're two of the only things in sports that you can't try harder at Uh, the harder and harder you try the less successful you're going to be out there. And it does speak to the mental game again, doesn't it? Yeah, hundred percent. And um, you, you just can't, you're right. You have to let it come to you. Like you can't, you can't swing harder, never works in golf, almost never. Um, and you can't just go out there and play harder in as a goalie. You have to, there's an element of sort of patience that required. There's a sort of Zen mentality, a flow state, as some guys will say. Um, that's mandatory to succeed in both sports. And again, once again, this may be why I struggle with both sports. Uh, you're better than you tell everybody. Okay, Woody, just before we head over to the hockey shop, I'd like to ask everybody to take a minute. And uh, if you could leave a comment with your favorite podcast provider or maybe give us the thumbs up or whatever sort of system they have. If you leave a comment, um, maybe we'll even read it out on the air. Like this one from a listener named Boots. Love, can't live without. Awesome podcast as a mom of two competitive goalies and a women's competitive goalie. This is just my favorite stuff to listen to. Thanks for such great lessons and information no goalie should live without. Just love hearing stuff like that. It makes it easier just to carve out this time in the day to record. So Boots, uh, whoever you are and wherever you are, I'm thinking Canada because there's an OU in favorite. Um, Thank you to you and your uh, two goalie kids. From all of us here at Ingle. Does, does that mean does that mean it's actually boots? Boots, not boots. Is it a What's boot? What's that? Is she a boot? Is it a boot? Oh, it might, it might if it's Canadian, it's a boot, not a it's a boot, not about a boot. There boot. you go. Uh okay, listen, our video segment this uh th- last week was on the Warrior G6, and it's been doing really well uh, over on YouTube where we publish all the gear segments. And so if you could get a chance, everybody, you might want to go and and check that out. Maybe give it a thumbs up for us. Leave a comment. There's like 80 comments there now or something. It's just going really well. We try and respond to as many as we can. Whether you want to tell us what you think of the gear, how it might apply to your game, or maybe even what you think of Woody's haircut, just leave us a comment. We'd really appreciate that. 
<laughs> we um, do pay attention too because remember the person that said I looked the first right. time we took off the masks and I had the big white beard and they asked who the old guy was. Beard was gone <laughs> the next morning. So folks, you have the ability to affect positive change. Just ask my wife. You got me to shave. Oh boy, that's why I don't go out in front of the camera and I'm hiding behind it. Okay, what do you um? How are you going to hand, handle tomorrow? Because you don't get to do your weekly trip out to the hockey shop to see Cam. I've uh, hired someone to go out and uh, be annoying as possible. I may be on an early charter to Bandon Dunes, but uh, Cam, don't worry, buddy. I've hired someone to come in as soon as the store opens at 10 o'clock, try out every model of glove, ask you as many annoying questions as possible, and just like be all around Woody annoying, trying stuff on, asking questions. And, you know, frankly, it's a good reminder, as much as we joke about how much of a pain in the butt I am for Cam at the hockey shop, um, they really do, whether it's Cam or any of his staff, these guys all understand and play the position. Hutch talked about the comments uh, on the YouTube page. Um, If you've got serious questions about some of the gear we review, comments, concerns even, you know, if you think we've got something wrong, um, put it in the comments, but also if, if you got questions about, you're thinking about, Hey, I wouldn't mind trying this, or how is this going to affect my play in that regard? And you've got specifics, reach out to them. Um, that's why they're the experts. That's why we go to them to do these gear segments. Cam and his crew have all the answers. And with all this new gear coming in, they're going to be able to tell you, we've seen Cam's got it out on the ice already. He's testing it. He's trying it. He's getting a feel for it. Um, he's getting feedback from other customers that have used it, and he'll be able to answer your questions. So check them out at the hockey shop in person here in beautiful Surrey, British Columbia, the outskirts of Vancouver, or online at thehockeyshop.com. And Cam gives us, in the gear segments every week, he gives us the numbers to call. Um, you can find the other contacts, the email, and ways to contact them on the website, thehockeyshop.com. Don't hesitate, folks, to reach out with any questions you have. New gear. And the other part of new gear coming out means look for more and more sale price items uh, as they look to move out the old stuff to make room for the new, like the Warrior G6 uh, and and like some of the other models that we'll have in the coming weeks. Okay, before we head over to the hockey shop for this week's gear segment, Woody, let's uh, take a little bit of a look around the NHL because as people are listening to this, the regular season is now ended. It's a few days away as we record. And it looks to me like injuries are going to play a bit of a role as the playoffs begin. Yeah, we kind of touched on it a little bit last week. We were feeling bad for Freddie Anderson having such a great season. Sounds like he's going to be back in the playoffs, but they're not sure how soon. Uh, Auntie Ranta, I believe, backed up the other night. So as bad as that looked, and as much to me as it looked like an MCL when he left the game earlier this week, uh, he was at least healthy enough to back up. Um, but hey, Peter, can I, sorry, I, I hate to go down a rabbit hole here, but how many times have we heard recently he can't start, but he can back up? Could somebody explain that to me? I, I to be like, honest, what with if you, you have to go in the game? I think the reality here, Hutch, and this is this is a bit of an issue, is that teams are you know I haven't I don't have it in front of me, I haven't pulled up cap friendly to check out Carolina, but I know we heard that a lot, obviously with the Vegas Golden Knights, and the reason, quite simply, is. Um, they could not afford cap-wise to bring somebody else up. And the one part of that mechanism that I don't fully understand is if you're short on injuries, you can bring guys up on an emergency recall basis. Um, I don't think they count against... Actually, they don't count against the roster, but they do count against the cap. I think they may still on the cap unless you go on IR, yeah. Yeah, this is just the reality. And so that puts a lot of pressure on the other guy in the game um, to not come out, and you can leave some guys in some bad spots. 
I'll be honest with you, I think we saw an example potentially of the risks of this with the Vancouver Canucks. Yaroslav Halak started the second end of back-to-backs. Thatcher Mm -hmm. Demko was on the bench as the backup. They did not want him to play in that game. They had Spencer Martin up on an emergency basis just in case. So obviously something was bugging Demko. But Halak was starting. Demko felt good enough to back up. Well, what happens? Halak gets injured, stick under the blocker during a scramble. It's done something to his hand. We don't know how serious it is, but he's not expected back for the season. Now all of a sudden, Thatcher Demko's got to go into that game, play the final two periods in a high-pressure, high-stakes situation one night after winning a high-pressure, high-stakes situation. So back-to-back games for him. Doesn't look himself two nights later in Minnesota. Doesn't look himself two nights after that with the Calgary Flames. And now he's out and we're hearing potentially for the season with an injury himself. So, um, you know, they're not going to be in the playoffs. So it doesn't matter in that regard. But there are going to be some questions starting to get asked around the league about workload, I think. UC Soros leaves the game with an apparent left leg injury last night. Not sure he's going to miss the final two regular season games. The Nashville Predators might not have that. W- what I think is going to be a Vesna Trophy finalist candidate in net when the playoffs start in UC Soros. And so we look around the league and we start to ask the question, because Igor Shesterkin had a little bit of a statistical dip in March. But one of the things that maybe was holding him back from being a truly, you know, heart trophy candidate outside of that blip was games played. Well, now he's picking it up and playing really well down the stretch after a little, a little bit of a break. And so what looks silly now, the New York Rangers for having less workload and maybe taking him out of the Hart Trophy voting consideration by not playing him as much, but now they have him ready to go and sharp heading into the playoffs or everybody else who played the wheels off their goaltender. UC Saros is one of the busiest goaltenders in the National Hockey League uh, amongst the most minutes, amongst the most starts. Freddie Anderson, I thought his workload is pretty balanced this year. But with anti Ranta hurt, he played a bunch down the stretch in a row, gets hurt. Thatcher Demko, one of the few goalies up there with UC Saros in terms of workload, doesn't make it to the end of the season. So I think, you know, as we, we talk about tandems in the regular season and the importance of not overworking some of these guys, and I know there's probably a lot of old school goalies out here just cringing because they used to play 72 as I talk about this, or 75, or 79 if you're Grant Fear. I just think this year, especially with the travel, especially post what was supposed to be the Olympic break and the schedule and the amount of scheduled losses where you're playing three and four and back to back and five and seven, I just think the wear and tear has been too much. And I think you could see maybe even Carolina with Coach Ketov. Oh, Peter, Kochetkov. Kochetkov? <laughs> Gesundheit. I keep screwing that one up. Um, even with him, a guy who's played less and might be fresher heading into the playoffs. Like, are we going to see that type of story emerge um, compared to the teams that have ridden workhorses so hard just to try and get into the playoffs that they've got nothing left once they're there? Yeah, games. the game's different now, isn't it, though? I mean, 79 games, Grant Fear, that's awesome, but we weren't butterflying nearly as much as we do today. We weren't in and out of the post the way we are today. The game wasn't east-west the same way it was. It was played in lanes. It was a very different workload on the body of a goaltender then. Yeah, no, and, and we, you know what? Let's tease a future guest who we, we sat, I sat down with last night. Um, stand up, one of the last sort of stand up goalies in the NHL, not the last, but amongst them, Kirk McLean, who will be a guest on the Ingle Radio podcast here in the coming weeks. Um, we already we, we got the interview in the can yesterday before my trip. Kirk was amazing, some great stories. But one of the things he said was 
not once in a 16-year career, 16 seasons, not once did he pull a groin. Not once did he have a knee injury. And when you look at the wear and tear on the goalies now and the styles now, um, I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence. So that, that's a fa- it was a fascinating conversation with Kirk and one we'll get into on his episode. But you're right. Just I think to me an indication of just the nature of the position, the style of play, and the way we play it now and the amount of wear and tear it puts on a body, you know, Vegas Golden Knights without Robin Lehner, season-ending surgery. Now, that's a shoulder surgery, right? So not to do with lower body, but also evidently was fighting some of those. Like, there's just, the game is so dynamic and east-west and fast. You have to be, you have to play on a razor's edge and with an incredible intensity every night you're in between the pipes, and it just wears physically and mentally on these guys more than it has in the past, I believe. Yeah, and probably something we could talk about with somebody like Adam Francilia, Devin McConnell, Maria Mountain, some of the guests we've had on just to talk about training because I know a lot of goaltenders, if they're not doing things correctly, and I am not at all pointing the finger at any of the current NHL goalies who are injured. I'm just speaking you know, from my knowledge and, and my thoughts on the game. I think we are really good at making guys stronger so that they can really hit the accelerator hard, but we're not necessarily training the brakes appropriately. So Uh, there's a lot more wear and tear as a result of how some people are training if they're not doing it correctly. So it's something to be, to be cautious of. Yeah. hundred percent things, things, like you said, things have just changed. Things have evolved and we need to evolve how we prepare so that our bodies can get through the season. And I think, you know, teams are, I'm fascinated to see whether teams use this season as, you know, a part of that learning curve, or did they just dismiss it as being a really unique year because of COVID and the number of games that guys missed and, and because of all the extra travel, or do they go to school on this? I mean, I still hear from goalie coaches in the NHL that tell me if they go into the coach's office and they've got a highly paid workhorse number one, and they're like, we're starting the other guy tonight. There are head coaches and assistant coaches around the league that are just losing it. And they're bewildered that these number ones, we pay them all this money. Why the hell can't he play 75 games a year? And so that mentality still exists out there. Let's see if anybody goes to school on the lessons from this season, especially if a guy like Igor Shesterkin goes on a deep playoff run and is able to sustain a high level of play throughout a playoff run for the New York Rangers. Would there be somebody you would think might come out of this and surprise us? I mean, Shesterkin going on a big run would not surprise us. There's opportunities here for some guys that maybe weren't expected to play, uh, who do you think might be prepared? And maybe that's even a team question. What team plays in a way that whoever's behind them is going to be successful? Well, I mean, when I look at some of the, you know, again, I look at some of the metrics to me that have led to playoff success in the past couple of years, the one that jumps out the most um, is sort of how well a team defends against the most dangerous types of scoring chances at five on five. Um, it's been a real strong predictor of playoff success in the past. And it kind of makes sense from a, you know, from a goaltending perspective as well, because power plays go away for the most part in the postseason, or they become harder to get. Although last year they, they did go up slightly, um, or at least penalties that I'm not sure power plays did, but it becomes more of a five on five game. And so when you look at the teams that have a ton of success at five on five defensively throughout the season, that usually translates into matchups. And so, you know, there's a lot of the usual suspects in there. Uh, Boston, Carolina, Minnesota, exceptional 
sort of five on five defensive teams, Florida, Colorado, um, you know, Calgary's in the top 10. One that I'm not sure a lot of people would expect this from or are paying attention to that could make some noise based on those metrics are the LA Kings, uh, a team that I don't think a lot of people had going into the playoffs. Um, they come out, they sort of come out in the wash on that one, uh, fifth in the National Hockey League in terms of expected goals against at five on five. Their first round matchup is the Edmonton Oilers, who have been a much better team under Jay Woodcroft. But when I look at that stat, um, that tells me, you know, that that matchup favors the King at five on five. And so, you know, then the question becomes goaltending. And Jonathan Quick's on a bit of a heater now. He's been up and down this season. Mike Smith is on an absolute tear right now. Is Mike Smith's heater enough to offset the fact that the Oilers give up more chances, those types of chances, significantly than, than the LA Kings? So, um, you know, a guy like Jonathan Quick, I don't think he'd be a name that you would say, you know, oh, that's a surprise because he's got two cups. But there's a guy that we didn't even expect to be the number one goaltender heading into the playoffs. And thanks to his recent heater, you know, it looks like he's going to be. And he plays behind a team that might have the structure, you know, to make a little noise in the postseason. Um, Beyond that, the other name, and this this one, his team's at the opposite end of this spectrum. Big time. Defensively, they are not that good. But... He has basically had the season that a lot of people talk about Igor Shesterkin having because Shesterkin's been amazing. This guy in a smaller sample has matched him sort of on an expected save percentage basis, but behind a team that is actually terrible defensively. The Rangers aren't the tire fire that people talk about them as. They're not the Shesterkin only. That's Vili Huso. I Maybe it's the sample. I thought that's where you're going. Maybe it's St. Louis. And again, well, I also say Jordan Binnington could end up in this series because he's got a track record of success and his adjusted numbers are also a lot better than the raw numbers are, you know, for all the criticism he's taken this year. But Vili Huso's numbers have been exceptional. Now they've come down, down the stretch a little bit as he's played more um, from the highs of earlier in the season, but they're still the kind that jump out of, they're the kind of numbers hutch, even though his team's underlying numbers are like, don't touch them on a bet. If someone's going to come out and play hero, it would be, he would be a guy that I would pick. But when I see what they give up, the reality, and this includes the year Jordan Bennington won the Stanley Cup, they, they were the opposite. They were at the high end of the spectrum in this stat. And teams that finish, you know, that poorly defensively don't tend to have playoff success. The Montreal Canadiens last year, for as much as they were a Cinderella story, were one of only a couple teams that had this number in the first round was better than Toronto's and better than every opponent right up until the Tampa Bay Lightning, who sort of have been that great team defensively two years ago and kind of threw the switch once the playoffs started last year. So, um, you know, sometimes these underlying numbers tell a bigger story than even the goaltending would lead you to believe exists. You're listening to us on your favorite podcast provider. You can just tap that button on the left-hand side now, go back a couple of minutes, and get all the advice you need as you make your picks for your playoff pools, everybody. Kevin Woodley, setting you up for success this year with some of the secret sauce that he uses to be so successful every year. I know. Um, Okay, listen, Woody. Our feature guest this week is presented by Sensorina VR, Dryden McKay, Hobie Baker winner. But uh, before we do that, 
I think it's time that we uh, head over to the hockey shop and learn a little bit more about True's 20.2 gear. Yeah, I was going to say, full credit for the uh, early delivery. I don't know how long you stayed up late uh, with the the play on the 20.2 reasons and the True uh, visit, uh, but I was very impressed with your early... P- I've just been taking notes when, when Darren speaks. He does them off the top of his head, and I make them up and write them down. Darren is the best. And by the way, folks, we're missing him for the third straight week here. He is getting better. Uh, we hope to have him back in the near future, but all the best to Darren as he continues his recovery from a really scary bicycle accident. Um, been fun to watch him on the Vegas Golden Knights broadcast, uh, but that is a lot to ask of him just to get through those. So we're getting him a few more weeks off here, but we can't wait to have him back. Uh, speaking of can't wait to be back, let's go to the hockey shop with Cam right now and get a little breakdown on the 20.2. I think since True came on, the scene. Uh, a lot of our focus early was that hey, it's the Lefaves. They make the they made the gear for CCM for all these years. Um, it's going to be similar gear, but with the twenty point one and now twenty point two lines, I think there's some departures, and so it's nice to get a chance to have it in hand to go over some of the features to get a taste. Thanks to Cam for how it's going to fit, feel, and play compared to some of their other products. Let's go to the hockey shop now and get that breakdown. Welcome back to the Hockey Shop Source for Sports. We're down here in Goalie Utopia, hanging out with Cam Matwiv, and we're about to go over the True L20.2 pads. We've got gloves and blocker. Truth is, glove and blocker, am I right? Hasn't really changed. Nope. Sort of the same sort of staples that we've always had. 580, 590, 600, same break, same good feel. Correct. Same palm options. That's a pro palm, a little tougher to close. I got to... Pro Palm as well. That's a Pro Palm? That's a Pro Palm. Wow, you've been doing a little breaking in. Hey, that's nice. Mm, fresh off the wall. I like it. Okay, well, let's get into the pads because that's where the changes are uh, from the 20.1 to the 20.2. We were recently talking with Lucas Dostal, uh, Anaheim Ducks prospect. He was telling me some of the things that he actually liked and could feel a difference because when we had the 20.1, when we pulled it off the wall and put it side by side, you know, visually, not a ton of difference between these pads, but there are some big differences in terms of how they've been built. Cam, walk us through them. So we'll start with the knee stack itself first. So True is stiffened up the knee stack to create a better rotation and drive down to the ice and a little bit more stability between the two. Keeping up with the knee area of the pad, they've also added a one inch nylon strap. Um, What this can do, so the the elasticity of an elastic strap inherently has some give to it. When you go with a nylon strap, there's no give to that nylon. So in theory, you're getting a more consistent and solid drive down. We've seen this kind of come about, a few NHL guys have kind of had some of those nylon straps swapped out on their pads and kind of gone consistent with it. Um, Kevin, you've got some actual insight on this a little bit too as well. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean I've seen lots of, I mean, this is an old Francois Lair thing. Um, his guys have had this forever. Um, even when they switch brands and other brands, they've kept it. And it's more about having a fixed endpoint. Uh, you talk about energy transfer. The reality is when you drop to the ice, and we saw this research done by CCM, you actually want, if the pad separates from the knee a little bit on the way down, you can actually get the pad to the ice faster. So we've sort of seen the science on that. Um, and so having a little bit of a gap is a good thing. Where we want what we really want to eliminate, and where I think a nylon strap, at least, I mean, I'm assuming that was the intention here because it's the intention of all the NHL guys I know that use it, is to have a fixed endpoint uh-huh. where 
if you're going to slide off a, a knee stack and hit the ice, it's going to be because that elastic gives when you get to the end of the stack. You don't want this to be too tight. You want to have a little bit of mobility, but having the ability to sort of have it set up so when you get to that end point, that knee's not going to come off because it's not going to give. Like to me, that having that fixed end point is more important. Than so picture yourself going to go for an tight. overdrive slide and that knee being pushed along the side. So it's now again stopping that slide off that potentially can't Yeah, it just keeps there. you on exactly. the stack better. All right. Fixed so, end point. Fixed end point. Been one okay. of our favorite theories for a while. So continuing on forward, they have changed the shape of the pad between the two a little bit overall. So if you zoom in on the side a little bit, you can see it's actually just a little bit of a thinner profile uh, on, on the, the boot. Yes, correct. Um, continuing with the back side of the pad. So True's fast rotation strap has changed with these two and is also different than the 20 point or 12.2 as well. So with the 20.1, the fast rotation strap was segmented and kind of wrapped around a little bit more. Whereas the 20.2, they actually went away from that um, segmentation a little bit and created just a little bit of a flatter system and also added in a little bit of a thicker pillow as well. So this is to help aid the seal of the pad when the pad's actually pushing in the overdrive position as well. Um, in terms of the fast rotation strap, so the 12.2 is a little bit longer in terms of overall fit. 20.1 is the same, a little bit longer. Actually, with more segmented. So that's where you see it there as well. Um, so again, a little bit shorter, aiding in that connectivity of that shin to that pad as well. Um, something that we talked about in previous uh, videos, you know, that more connectivity, the pad helping to aid in that rebound as well as making sure that that leg's right up against that shin when you're down in the butterfly. Well, and that's the one part that Lucas Dostal told us that he liked in the 20.2 compared to the 20.1. Just uh, uh, the Ducks Farm team was up when we were just chatting gear and he felt like um, he didn't have that connection in 20.1 down sort of through the top of the skate in through the shin and he felt like it was a lot better in the 20.2. So it sounds like that combination of thinning out that boot, changing that angle up a little bit more, and having a, a fast rotation system that doesn't go as far down into the bottom of the pad is really what accomplishes that for him. Correct, and, and you kind of alluded to there and stole the thunder a little bit. Yes, that new boot shape. Um, so this is closer to the 12.2. This now allows the sizing of the pads to be very similar between the 12.2 and the 20.2 uh, in terms of overall fitment-wise, whereas we were experiencing you know, quite a bit of a difference with the 20.1. Uh, Overall flex is still there, you know, something that we've really seen keen to this is that same soft, super flexible boot that you get out of the 12.2, um, something that can obviously be changed up um, if you were wanting something just a little bit stiffer. Um, very, very flat, not really a whole lot of boot channel to this. Again, the ability there is that that skate is going to drop out of that pad just a little bit easier, get it closer to the ice, be able to get that push off quicker. And fitment, so this is closer to. 12.2, is it fit a little bit, looks like a little bit taller, or does that change on based on how it goes on top of the skate with that flat boot? Yeah, it depends a little bit on, on your, again, boot setup for the overall pad, you know, how tight that fast rotation strap ends up being, but the sizing is pretty close between the two. All right. Uh, any other changes, innovations, things that we're seeing different here from Chew in this model? That's the thing. They haven't changed the recipe too, too much. So we're just getting a little bit of that forward advancement. Again, quite a few custom options in terms of the flex profile for the pad that you, you know, what one would suit you best. Um, customization is still there. We are getting the occasional order here and there. 
If you do have some questions about potentially getting an order in, you can call me at 604-589-8299 or 1-800-567-7790. Almost forgot it there. And in the meantime, though, if you want something off the rack, you do have it in stock, 20.2. Correct. Uh, see, it, see it here. See it here. Domestic so. 20.2. There still is a couple sets, but we will have, hopefully, an import version soon. Stay an tuned. import version from True. Dun, dun, dun. Look forward to seeing that. Nice cliffhanger. That segment uh, on the True 20.2, like all of them, uh, going back more than a year now, are presented over on YouTube. So we'd love it if you'd head over there and check it out so you can see the gear yourself. We'd love it if you'd take a second to like, subscribe, and of course, comment on Woody's hair. Okay. This week and every week, our friends at Sensorina VR present the feature interview on the InGoal Radio podcast. And uh, Woody, we love talking about all the great benefits of Sensorina each week. One of them is this new mode that allows precise placements of shots, something you'll never see on ice from your favorite shooter in practice, especially you, Woody, because you never practice, because you're a beer leaguer. But for all the guys out there and the gals who are practicing hard, you can't get the shooters you need. But Sensorina helps you with that. And we thought we could tell you about it. But better yet, we've brought in Sensorina Director of Goaltending, Brian DeCord, to tell you all about it. Hi, goalies. I'm Brian DeCord, Director of Goaltending Development at Sensorina. You know, I've been a goalie coach for over 25 years. And one of the most frustrating things is finding shooters that can hit the right spot during drills. Well, Sensorina has solved that. In our latest release, we're going to be offering a shot locator. And that means if you go to the right dashboard, you can pick the location of where you want the shot in the drill. I'm so excited about this release. I hope you enjoy it. See it. Stop it. Okay, that's just one example of how Sensorina continuously updates their system to make it better for you. And, uh, and also how Brian likes to communicate with the Sensorina goalies on social media. So would suggest that uh, you follow Sensorina on all the different platforms uh, on social media that you like to follow people on. And, and Brian will be on there and some other folks will be on there, including InGoal, to uh, share some, some great training tips with you. If you want to try Sensorina this summer and make it part of your regular training, uh, head over to sensorinas.com, place your order, and use the code IGM50, and you'll get that chance to save a little bit more as well, and as so many more InGoal members have done. Woody, here we go. Tell us about your chat with Dryden McKay, because when you got off the line with him this morning, I got this text message that simply said, OMG, Dryden was great. Your kids have been teaching you how to text. What was so great about Dryden? Just one of those guys, Hutch, that, you know, no stone unturned, clearly uh, a student of the position. I just loved his approach, the way he thinks through the position, the way his game has evolved, and the way he's able to talk about the, how his game has evolved, how he's had to manage it at various levels when he didn't have a goalie coach, including in junior, um, and how he learned from that. And he comes by it very naturally. Uh, his, his dad, Ross McKay, uh, played at a really high level all the way up to the NHL, one game with the Hartford Whalers in 1991. Um, but had a minor, you know, minor pro career for, for a few years there. And obviously played at a really high level, played CIS as, as, uh, as Dryden tells us during the interview and was his goalie coach at an early age. And interestingly enough, so for Dryden, uh, exposure to a lot of what we would now think of as a slightly older school skating drills and sort of skating emphasis, 
uh, things that he had to change when he got to college because he played with a little too much flow, a little too much backwards momentum. And yet elements that have helped him um, as he got older and as he rose up the levels, that ability to move, that ability to skate, that ability to control his edges. And so uh, this is just one of those conversations that uh, when I hang up, I've got a big smile on my face and I'm texting you about how good it was because it was just two guys talking with a clear passion for goaltending on his end that shines through. Um, the ways he gets better, the ways he thinks about the game, his approach, um, why being a forward longer before becoming a goalie only, why he thinks that's helped him, uh, the adjustments at each level he's made. Just, you know, one of these kids, I, I don't want to give the whole thing away. You got to listen to it. Um, we've been blessed to have a few of these recently. Kind of reminds me of Strauss Mann, and we've gotten a lot of positive feedback on the Strauss Mann interview. Um, this next generation of goaltenders understands the position and has a clear passion for it. And in Dryden McKay's case, that passion comes shining through in this interview. Really happy to welcome to the Ingold Radio Podcast for the first time, Dryden McKay, Hobie Baker Trophy winner. Only the third goalie in the history of the award, following Rob Stauber and Ryan Miller. Kind of heard of that guy. That like That's a hell of a career you've just come off at Minnesota State and, and a great season to end it. What does it mean to you to sort of like, that's an award they, they don't tend to give to us goaltenders. What does it mean to you to, to join a short list like that to, to, uh, to be a Hobie Baker trophy winner? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's very, very humbling for sure. Um, even if, you know, goalie or not, I mean, that award is um, very storied and very proud. And, um, you know, you see some of the names on there and it kind of takes your breath away as far as guys that, that went on to the NHL. So, um, you know, I think I'm still a little bit in shock and um, just, yeah, very excited about about the whole thing. Now, how has your game progressed while you were at Minnesota State? Because I, I look at the numbers and like you pretty much posted video game numbers. If video games were actually friendly to goaltenders, not forwards. This is like these are some ridiculous numbers all four years, man, like 924, 942, 924, 931. In those four years, I'm guessing you evolved, the position evolves. How's your game how's your game evolved over those four years? And tell us if you could describe it for those of our listeners that weren't able to watch you enough during the NCAAs, how would you how would you describe where it's at now? Yeah, I mean, I think um, my freshman year coming in out of juniors, I was coming off a team where I was getting, you know, 40 to 50 shots a game. I was kind of um, you know, kind of just getting peppered and I'd face all types of situations, which I think looking back was awesome for me to face. But I think once I got to college, I was a little um, raw. I was very, I was a good first shot. And then after that, it was pretty scrambly and there'd be a lot of holes and I'd be, you know, kind of outside my post. I'd be all over the place. And I think um, from day one, when I started working with um, Brennan Potters, I was the goalie coach my first three years here at Minnesota State. He kind of, uh, he kind of calmed me down a little bit, showed me how, especially at my size, how to efficiently, um, you know, play the game, especially with the way that Minnesota State was going to play. We we're not going to give up a ton of lateral plays. Um, as long as I could be a first good first shot goalie with really good rebound control and, you know, occasionally make the, the you know 10 bell save or whatever i think 
once I kind of realized that how my style is going to fit in with the team, I think that's kind of when my, when I found my footing uh, in college. Okay. So I kind of buried the lead here, which is like a cardinal sin of, of journalism, which is <laughs> you know probably why I'm doing the in goal radio podcast and, and not doing as much writing as I used to. Um, but I forgot to congratulate you also as I was too hyped on the Hobie. I forgot to congratulate you on the contract with the Toronto Marlies as well. Can you walk me through that process and what that's like? Um, you know, you finish your college career. I know, I know that the national championship didn't end the way you guys at Minnesota State wanted to, but to mm-hmm. go from that to into these negotiations and looking at a deal, congratulations on the deal. What can you share about the process? Yeah, I'm really excited. First of all, um, you know, I don't think there's a more first class uh, organization in Toronto, and um, you know, it, it's a, so. I don't want to say once in a lifetime, but it's definitely, you know, the dream of any hockey player, you know, you get to play, represent the Leafs. So very honored that way. And yeah, the negotiations were, were good. Um, you know, I, to be honest, I think being under 6-2 eliminated at least half the teams in the NHL, scares them away immediately. So um, from there, you, you know that any team that's contacting you or contacting your, you know, my agent is, is interested for the right reasons. And that's, you know, because of my abilities. And um, from there, it was just about finding the right situation um, within the organization. And I think Toronto's a great fit. Now I'm guessing you leave the agent to do the discussion when it comes to dealing with the GM and stuff, but are there any conversations? I mean, we know the goalie coach is involved. Um, you know, whether it's John Elkin sort of looking, overseeing things or Steve Briere's a, a guy that we've gotten to know here on the program over the years as well. Uh, Hanu Toivonen back to his playing days. Like, are there any conversations? Are you involved in that process? To you know, is there any feeling out on your end to to sort of get an idea of how they see you fit and and what the philosophies are like? Yeah, for sure. I think you know, um, they always tell you know the agent you know kind of the the offer, and then um, if you think it's a good offer, then yeah, you definitely talk to the team and and you want to hear firsthand from them and and build that relationship with them as far as where they see you and. Um, what their opinions are and and if they line up with yours then it's great and if not then you know that's okay too so um yeah definitely definitely look to have a conversation with them and I, I was I talked to the scout and um, they're in the middle of kind of a playoff push here so um, <laughs> a little busy yeah, yeah so I think you know some of the higher-ups were a little busy too so but no I, it's been great and, and I look forward to to eventually getting to getting to Toronto and, and meeting everybody now, do you, if you go into that process, whether it's with a scout or anyone else, and, and, you know, you don't have to tell me if there were other teams involved, but with any team, you know, are, is there any constructive criticisms, uh, criticism as well? Is there any point where they're saying, hey, we love this. We think you maybe need to work. Like, do you have to go in with an open mind? And, you know, because I do know some guys in the past where they were part of that recruiting process coming out of college and, and that was part of it. And some guys went to a team where they, where there was sort of, hey, we need to change this. And they were cool with it. Other guys avoided it. And just thought, hey, I'm good now. And it's been interesting to sort of follow those career arcs since. Yeah, I think, you know, it's the same thing as when you're getting recruited to college or, you know, for younger kids, just anytime you're getting recruited to a team, you know, obviously a team that wants you is going to tell you how great you are and how good you are at this. And, you know, we think you can do this and we see this and, you know, they're going to they're going to build it up. So I think the, the key that I've learned over the years is you got you got to you got to figure out what what the facts are, you know, where, where could you realistically see yourself? Obviously there's always that potential that you achieve the max, but um, you know, where, where do you realistically fit in? Um, You know, 
do they show that they they honestly know who you are? Because I know guys too that have been. Um, I think a buddy of mine was talking to an agent, and the agent was like, "Oh, we love the way you." Uh, we were like, "We love the way you one time the puck." And he goes, "What hand am I?" And the guy goes, "Uh, a righty," and he was a lefty. So the guy had never seen him play, you know. So you got to make sure that they actually know who you are. They followed you. They scouted you. They they have their facts straight because um, that means a lot as as long as, you know, they show genuine interest. That sounds like it's good advice at every level of the recruiting process. Sounds like some firsthand experience there, Dryden. Yeah, yeah, you definitely learn. Um, you know, I've made my fair share of mistakes, too. So you definitely got to learn how to uh, handle those situations. Okay, so I've taken this all over the map here, and there were so many other little strings I wanted to pull on as part of your early answers. Um, Let's start with, I've made a list here of all the things I want to go back to, and we'll get to size because I think it ties to style as well. Um, But when you talked about, you know, I'm assuming that it was the last year uh, in Madison when you talked about in the USHL, when you talked about 40, 50 shots and being super busy, as much as you had to refine your style after that for a different team, you mentioned there were positives there. I'm curious. Um, we see throughout minor hockey in a lot of countries and organizations, the best goalies end up on the best teams. I've heard recently some, from some of the Russian goaltenders that that doesn't seem to be the case over there as often at a young age. And they feel there's a benefit to maybe at times just having to survive behind a not necessarily great team your experiences facing all those shots and how it helped you to just force you to read the game and see more situations and anticipate better? How did, how did it pay off? Yeah, I think, you know, even when I was younger, um, you know, I never made, I never made the squirt A team. I was always the squirt B team and and so on. So I think I was always kind of put in those situations where um, if the team was going to win, I was going to have to be kind of a a big part of the game, um, which I think kind of taught me how, how hard it is to win, especially in juniors. I learned, you know, the fine line between winning and losing, um, especially, you know, if you're on a team that can't score or a team that gives up a ton of chances, like stuff like that. I think it teaches you how hard it is to win a game and, and how important a goaltender is to to a team. And um, I think, especially in, in the USHL, facing, you know, the level of competition that you're playing, you're playing high-end players, you're playing the best players in the country every game. I think, you know, being exposed to, you know, those guys on a power play, those guys on odd man rushes, you know, seeing how those players operate. I think that's kind of experience that you can't buy. And I think once I got to college, I used, I was able to use that experience behind a better team to still, um, you know, have success. Adjustment though. Um, Cause it's one we, t- you know, we've heard right up to the national hockey league guys who are really good on bad teams or good on busy teams that keep them busy. And I should be clear there just because you're busy doesn't mean it's a bad team. It just means it makes, in some cases at other levels, it can be a style thing. But to go from seeing a ton of shots to seeing less, what's that adjustment like mentally? Um, you mentioned style changes with Brennan that came along with that. But what about just from the mental side and the focus side and being, you know, not getting all the shots to keep you engaged. Did you have to find new ways to keep your mind focused on the right things in a game? And are there any tips you can pass along? Yeah, I think that was that was definitely my biggest adjustment adjustment with college is, you know, we probably only give up 20, 25 shots a game. But you knew you knew that we were going to give up, you know, at least a, a two on one, a breakaway. You know, you were going to see those type of chances, but it might be a two on one and you haven't seen a shot in 10, 15 minutes, which is 
any goal he'll the hardest is harder than any two-on-one you're going to face if you're in the flow of the game so um, I think at first that was probably the biggest adjustment for me and and you know people that aren't goalies always going to look at those those type of goalies like oh he gave up three goals on 15 shots well the three goals were two breakaways and a, and a backdoor two-on-one you know what's the goalie supposed to do if he's not facing you know the numbers whereas if, if it's three goals on 40 shots everybody's like oh great game if it's the same three goals but yeah I think that was the biggest thing I think you know mentally you have to every goal is different for me I'm not one of those goalies that's going to be super active in between whistles you know skating to corners and stuff like that but in between whistles just just finding something to focus on to whether it's on the ice or whatever to to keep you focused and keep you fresh and and you know you don't want to be nervous for that next shot you want to be excited for the next shot I think is the biggest thing just sort of mental approach to not start thinking about, oh man, like your mind can't go to, I haven't seen a shot in 10 minutes. It has to be about, I can't wait for that next shot. As much as that's an oversimplification, is that kind of what you're talking about mindset wise? Yeah, exactly. You can't be scared that, oh, I hope they don't get a breakaway here. It's, oh, I, I hope they get a breakaway so I can make the big save to keep keep our momentum type of thing. Because because those saves, especially when your team is is playing well and kind of controlling the play, those type of big saves just only add to the momentum and it, and it helps to you know kind of further discourage the other team in my opinion and you know if, if you're getting dominated and you get your one big chance and you still can't score you know that's pretty uh demoralizing puck handling um it's another tool that we've seen guys use i mean we've seen guys break periods into smaller segments to keep their mind focused all kinds of different things but more and more when guys aren't engaged with shots they're turning to handling the puck as a way to stay involved and communication with D is a way to make sure their mind's in the game. Was that another thing that you added or, or adjusted as you went? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think in juniors, I didn't play the puck very much, and I uh, I was usually too tired to communicate to my defensemen. But, yeah, I think I think once I got to college, once I got to college, I realized how important that stuff was and, um, you know, both how it can help the team and how it can help, you know, the goalie, per, um, you know, stay in the game and, um, just feel like you're contributing something because if you're just standing there getting cold back there, it's it's kind of a lonely feeling. So, yeah, definitely playing the puck, communicating, um, even at TV timeouts or in between whistles, whatever, just going to the bench and just talking to somebody and whether it's, you know, about the game or just joking around, just something to keep you involved. Love it. Now, you, the other thing you mentioned is you during in that path up to college uh, before you got to Minnesota State, you said you played behind teams that gave up a ton of shots. We also played behind teams along the way that didn't score. And so I'm curious because this is sort of the end, you know, this is one of the debates that I've had this one at the NHL level going back to the Mika Kiprasov days in Calgary. What would you rather have? A really good defensive team that can't score or a team that gives up a bunch of shots, but you know they're going to put some pucks in at the other net. You've experienced both as you came up. Like, what do you think is the tougher thing for a goaltender? Going into a game knowing your team might not score for you or going into a game knowing they're going to give up a bunch of chances? I think probably the one that's going to give up the chances, but you know that if you do give one up, there's there's a better chance that they're going to go get one at the other end. I think, you know, the teams that I were on were, you know, we couldn't score. I think it just adds so much pressure to the goalie, and especially to the team. It just feels like, say, you, you give up the first goal, it, it crushes the team because they know how, um, how hard it is for them to score. So I think um, – you know, in college, we could we could put the puck in the net. So I think after experiencing that for four years, I think I would definitely choose the team that the team that could score. And I would definitely, you know, take on the challenge of, of you know, the higher quality opportunities. 
did you find any way to deal with the other thing? Because I think like uh, if you've got any magic pill for how to deal, how to manage that pressure of being behind a team that you know isn't going to score for you, I think there's a <laughs> lot of goalies that would love to hear it. Because I, I just think that's one of the things that you know, we look at what a goalie faces. I don't know that enough people f- sort of factor in how difficult that is to be a goalie on a team that doesn't score for you. That's it just feels like it's it's an immense amount of pressure, and I'm not sure it gets talked about very much right up to the National Hockey League. Yeah, I think I think as a goalie, you just got to embrace it. You know that every game is going to be a grind. It's probably going to be if you're going to win, it's going to be a two-one, three-two, three-one type of game. And um, you know, as a goalie, I think that's what you kind of grow up. Um, you know, that's what kind of draws you to the position is that pressure that um, if the team's going to win, if um, you know the team's going to have success, the goalie has to play well. The goalie's going to have to steal one every once in a while, stuff like that. So I think you just got to embrace it. Would be my biggest thing, and and. Don't look at it as a as a negative. Look at it as as a challenge to you to to keep the other team to you know two or less or one or less, and um, just kind of use it as motivation. So you you talked about sort of how your game evolved with Brandon and 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 sort of managing your size and understanding that you didn't need to be as active as much as that may have been a product of the shot volume. Um, the exhausting shot volume that you were seeing in the USHL. Some of those totals just made me tired of thinking about it. Um, <laughs> what uh, can you give us some specifics? Because I think that's you know, especially when we talk about you know, there's a lot of focus on size around the league. I think a lot of the attention is maybe you know directed in the wrong area. Um, I'll throw a theory out at you that uh, you know I'm not going to take credit for. I think it was Ian Clark that shared it with us. Like as much as the focus sometimes is on. You know, it's tougher for smaller goaltenders. The reality is if there's a perfect size, I don't not saying there is, but if say there's an ideal at six two or six three, the guys that are bigger have to overcome their size and the guys that are smaller have to overcome their size. They just have to overcome different things. The difference is the big guys get every opportunity to do so. The small guys have to fight for those chances. Is that is that fair? And how did you learn to manage that size differently during your time with Brennan? Yeah, I think. I think the biggest thing that he taught me was um, just beating beating plays on my feet at any opportunity. He, you know, he he told me that I was sliding way too much. Um, you know, I was cheating. Uh, he calls it drift, but just you know the backwards momentum in my game where I would I would come out real aggressive because I knew I was small, but then by the time they shoot it, I'm back too deep. So he kind of eliminated the drift in my game. I was more I was more set on shots, more. Um, just overall more set. And then on, on whatever the play was, I was beating it on my feet, being set in the perfect position so that my size didn't matter. If you're in the perfect position and you know, you go down, it's, you're taking away the, the majority of the net. So um, just getting more comfortable, more confident in my feet, I think, as far as um, plays off the rush, especially low to high plays, you know, getting up to the top of the crease, establishing myself, um, so that when those point shots came with, you know, tips and screens and all that, that kind of happens more at the college level. You're in you're in good position for pucks to kind of hit you or um, if there's a rebound, you're you're in your your balance is good as far as recoveries. Now, position, when you say you're in good position, I think a lot of the, you know, I mean, you're talking to an audience, 100 percent goaltender. So I think they in- inherently understand this. But outside of the goaltending world, I don't know that they do. They see a smaller goalie and they think they have to be super aggressive. What for you is good position relative to the crease? Like, I think we're past the days where it's like, I, I guess the best anecdote I can give is UC Saros and Pekka Rinne. And when Saros arrives in Nashville, 
Peck is like, oh my gosh, this guy plays less aggressive than me and and I'm seven inches tall or eight inches taller. Like where to you playing at 5'11", how far out do you need to be? Where did you find that sweet spot for you? Heels out, toes on, like where relative to the edge of the crease? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think that kind of depends on the play. I think if there's passing options and, um, you know, for example, if it's if it's in zone, then maybe I'm toes at the top of the crease um, just because there's more going around behind you um, kind of off to the side. If it's off the rush, I'm probably heels on top. Um, just from there, I feel like you're ready for a straight shot, especially if he's coming in full speed. But you're also, you know, not so far out that if there's a rebound or a pass across, you're you know, having to dive, dive over. So I think it kind of depends on the situation, but also if a guy's coming down the wing with no options, why not take that extra step out to guarantee, you know, to make sure that it's going to hit you. Um, so I think it all, it kind of completely depends on the play, which is something Brennan talked a lot about too. And we would watch a lot of video um, after weekends, looking at plays where, well, this guy's got no pass options. Let's take an extra step out. Um, or here he's got pass options you know, let's, let's maybe back up a little bit so that that pass across is an easier movement for you. So I think that a lot of that came with my ability to read the play and, um, you know, kind of my hockey, hockey IQ. I think that helps, helps a lot with understanding situations and, and where I need to be. And yet within that other outside of that one guy alone, you know, step out and take more ice, you're connected to the crease pretty much the entire time. Like we, we've evolved past the point of thinking that a guy who's under six foot needs to be two feet outside his crease. Thank goodness. <laughs> exactly. Now the rush chance that you mentioned, you mentioned flow. Was that a product of um, just feeling like you needed to be out there before, before you arrived at Minnesota? Like, did you take a lot of ice and flow back? Was that a, just a, how you learned it, a timing thing, or was that, like you said, a function of feeling like, hey, I'm smaller, I need to be out there more, and all you really did was created more moving parts, I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I think I think it was kind of the way I was taught. Um, you know, my dad was kind of my goalie coach, but he also played, you know, in the 80s and then 70s and 80s, so that back then there was a lot of flow in their game. So I think once I got to college, it was, you know, all that's going to do, um, that flow, the biggest um, – thing that Brennan kind of talked about is that that backwards flow you'll see so many goalies that if you get caught by surprise your momentum is coming backwards so if it squeaks under your arm or hits the top of your shoulder that puck's going to keep going with your momentum whereas if you're set it's going to hit you and hopefully redirect you know wide or somewhere else so that was part of it is kind of the leaky goals eliminating those and then um, just understand that I didn't need all that momentum to get a powerful push across I think that was for me that was what I was kind of sitting on was those big pushes across and just realizing that if I, if I was standing still or even just with a little bit of momentum, I could still get there in, in plenty of time. Okay. So the little bit of flow was to design to sort of set yourself up for some of those lateral plays. Yeah. And if there's too much flow and say they take a shot and it, there's a big rebound, you're moving backwards and now you got to stop that momentum to direct it somewhere else. Right. And even the art of moving backwards. I mean, I guess once you get a little flow, you've got both edges balanced. But as you start that movement, you know, we used to see guys that used to do it a lot. You can get caught on the wrong edge, right? You're on, you mm-hmm. happen to have your weight on that left edge and a pass goes to your left. Well, now you got to shit, you know, just more delays in the movement. Yeah. Um, that evolution brings me to questions about the upbringing. Uh, I guess I'll go way back. The question we normally ask because everybody's got an origin story and it tends to be either related to a sibling who makes the younger guy go and goal or a fascination with the gear. 
But for you, when you're named after Ken Dryden, do you really have a choice but to be a goaltender? <laughs> how did the, how did it start for you? Where the where the love for the position sounds like that was a big part of it. Yep. So that my dad played. Uh, he played CIS for University of Saskatchewan, and then he had a had a little cup of coffee for uh, the Hartford Whalers. He was mostly in Binghamton with the Whalers. He won a Calder Cup there. So. He played, and then um, after he was done, he, he became a chiropractor in Illinois, where I'm from. And um, when I was a kid, you know, re- super young, he was still coaching goalies, um, whether it was little kids at night. And he was also um, the goalie coach for the local team in the NA, the Chicago Freeze. So I think my love for hockey and being a goalie kind of started with, you know, mom, where's dad? Oh, he's coaching goalies. So how do you go hang out with dad? You become a goalie. So. Um, but he also always had me around the rink. Um, he'd bring me around the rink, bring me in the locker room. You know, it was always on the TV, stuff like that. And um, my parents say that my first three words were, you know, mama, dad, and hockey. So I think from an early age, the love was there. I was always surrounded by it. And um, But he didn't push me to be a goalie. I don't think I got my first set of goalie skates till I was probably, I want to say, you know, probably a squirt. So that's what, 10 to 12, which was a little bit later. You know, I was one of the the last goalies at my age to get goalie skates. And um, he didn't give me brand new goalie pads until he knew for sure that this is what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, at the, I was go- always going to power skating sessions as a forward, you know, in the springtime I would play forward and in the fall I would play goalie. So, um, you know, at the time I really wanted to be a goalie, but I think if I didn't learn that skating and that other side of the game, then I don't think I would be as good of a goalie as, you know, I am now. It's funny because uh, in an era now where kids will start being goalies only at like, you know, really young ages, six, seven, eight. Um, it's interesting that uh, the the goalies whose dads played the position tend to encourage them to. Anyway, I think of Braden Holtby telling us the same thing, that his dad who played in the dub made sure he was a forward, you know, right into his teens and how valuable that was. Mobility, you know, physical literacy, the ability to skate but also the patterns of the game. Do you think it helped you when you talk about reading the game to anticipate having spent so much time on the other side of the puck? Yeah, I think, you know, as a goal, you have to be an athlete too. You know, I played, I played baseball. I think that helped a lot with, you know, my glove hand and um, kind of reading stuff like that. You know, you know, I played first base, so the ball was always getting thrown at me, stuff like that. So I always tell, you know, if anybody asks like, oh, what camp should I be doing in the summer and this and that? And you see so many kids that get so burnt out, even kids that I've played with growing up that, you know, play other sports, play a different position. You know, I think as a forward and a defenseman, you see that other side of the game, you get to shoot on a goalie and see what what's hard, what something a goalie can do that makes it hard for you to score. Um, and if you see it from that side, then you can implement it to your game and say, oh, well, this is what the shooter's thinking in this spot. This is how, you know, I could change his approach or change my approach or, you know, alter the situation. So I think that that knowledge and that experience definitely helped. Now, what about goalie coaching? Obviously you had dad, were there any other influences? And I'm, you know, again, this, it just reminds me of Braden. Anytime we've got a, a, you know, a goalie on whose dad played the position at such a high level as your dad did. Was there a point where as the game changed and his style might've been a little different where you guys like, was it a, coach people relationship dad's son was there back and forth were you pushing back on certain things how did that evolve as as a young guy I mean, at the beginning i guess you're just doing you just want to be out there with dad but as you start to mature into your game did it change 
Yeah, for sure. I think he was my goalie coach. I was, if I was skating in the summer, it was with him. Um, he was usually an assistant coach, at least on my other teams, and he'd be out at practice probably up until Bantams, I want to say. So, you know, however old that is, probably 13 or 14. So I think once it got to kind of Bantams and, and Midgets, for sh- I'd say Midgets, my you know 15-year-old year, I think that's kind of the year he went from goalie coach to dad. Um, dad, supportive dad. I think he still, he still helps me with, you know, tips, but it's more uh, off the ice, you know, mental tips. And, um, he'll even ask me for drills and, you know, oh, what's he saying about, cause he doesn't know anything about, you know, the RVH or the VH or all this newer stuff with, with how the gear is made now, especially. But I think when I was younger, the biggest thing was, you know, he, he helped my skating. He, every, if I was skating with him, it was all skating. Cause, um, you know, back in back in their day, they couldn't slide around. So it was all feet and all footwork. And I think doing that so much when I was younger definitely laid the foundation for um, what I've learned later in my career with with all the new, you know, post integrations and RVHs and that new layer of, of goaltending that's kind of come around the last couple of years. You find yourself going back to any of the old school drills when it comes to skating, when it comes to footwork. And we've seen, you know, some like newer age goalie coaches putting that back in. Uh, we've seen, you know, the rush to Russian goaltenders who, uh, you know, a lot of their foundation early on is, like you said, skating based. And some of it may look a little, you know, may not look like what we're used to increase patterns. It's a little different. And yet it it provides mobility. Do you find yourself going back to any of those old drills or? Yeah, I think, you know, even when you're you're on your own, you can do, you know, those basic, you know, you got the M drill, the X drill, whatever you want to call it. Those just those basic crease footworks where, you know, maybe nowadays you're going to be sliding into your post a little bit more. Um, you know, adding more butterflies, but you can do a solid skating session and your knees never touch the ice. You know, you can, you can work on your T pushes, work on your shuffles, work on your, um, you know, work on cross, you know, you don't just have to do goalie skating, you know, you can do crossovers and, and, you know, C cuts and stuff with the, with like players, just, you just got to work on your edges. And, and if you're comfortable on your skates as a smaller guy, that that's a huge advantage. So we talked about dad as your goalie coach until you got up into that sort of midget range. What about learning on your own? Like, did you, were you a guy that watched a lot of other goalies? Did you have other heroes, other idols, whether it's in the NHL or local college or even junior rinks um, Mm -hmm. that you looked up to, but also maybe were there points where you started to mimic them where you're watching them and you're saying, Hey, he did it this way. Maybe I should try that. Where, where, did the, where did you hit that threshold? Yeah, I think once I got to juniors, probably, I didn't have a, a goalie coach in juniors until really my last year. It was my first year. So I played three years of juniors, and I had no goalie coach. So I was wow. kind of on my own. So it was a lot of, you know, I'm a, I'm a hockey fan. I'm a hockey nerd, so I watch a lot of hockey. I watch, you know, every morning I wake up and I watch the highlights. Um, if I'm sitting around, I'll just throw on a game, stuff like that, and I try to just – you know, do an ISO cam on the goalies sometimes, whether it's on a power play or, you know, if they make a big save and you see, oh, well, if he had just controlled his rebound here, maybe, you know, kind of just think about the different angles of the game and um, what what goalies do well, what they don't. And then just think about those situations. Oh, how do, you, how do I think I would have played that stuff like that? I think that mental side of the game has definitely helped me. And and then once I was able to get to college and, and be with a goalie coach, then it, it kind of all came together. And you have somebody that sees things in your game that you don't even see. So um, I've definitely seen both sides of it. I think if you don't have a goalie coach, there's definitely things you can do. Um, you know, don't be afraid to set up drills before or after practice. You know, everybody wants to help you. And 
yeah, I think I think watching hockey is definitely a big tool for younger goalies. That's something you had to do first three years of junior is like say, hey, okay, guys, I've been a target long enough here. Here's a couple that can help me get better. Let's let's set up a goalie drill and you're running things on your own. You and part you and your partners trying to take care of each other out there. Yeah, usually you got to go through like an assistant coach or something to, to make sure that he controls the players and the shooters to make sure they're not taking advantage of it. So usually, you know, I would go up to them. Hey, can I, can I set up a few drills here? And, you know, they're always going to say yes if there's the time. So, um, yeah, hey, I want to do these two drills and then he'll go grab a couple players and it's that easy. You know, guys are always happy to help. So. Uh, any favorites? Do you remember any? Like having to take – I think there's value there too, no? Do you think, like at a time when – as much as there was a little part of him, oh man, he didn't have a goalie coach in junior. I'm also thinking, yeah, he would have had to take ownership of his own game. Do you see value in that? Because, you know, we've heard of guys like, again, right up to the show where you talk to the goalie coach and they're like, I wish I'd let him control a little more. He became so dependent on me, you know, like, geez, this mm-hmm. guy couldn't go to the bathroom without asking. Like, you <laughs> know, like, do you, is there value there in having to take ownership of your game and, and analyze it as your own coach for three years in junior? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I think as a goalie, I think you, as an, as, as a hockey player, you have to be in charge of your own game. You know, people can only help you so much. And I think you can, you can help yourself a lot if you um, are mature enough to, to see the weaknesses in your game and, and look at the goals on the weekend. And, you know, if you look at them and say, Oh, you know, that was my D's fault. That was this guy's fault. That, that wasn't my fault. Then you're not going to get better and you're going to get scored on that way again. But if you can look at a goal and say, okay, it wasn't a bad goal. It wasn't necessarily my fault, but what could I have done differently? Whether that's, you know, if you have to cheat on a, on a backdoor play, you know, maybe next time you, you're ready for that and you lean a little bit more, you know, just different stuff. Um, I think being able to, to look in the mirror is really important and, and understand your weaknesses and, and what, what you could do differently next time to, you know, maybe get a toe on it. Maybe it hits the piece of your glove next time. Just, just little stuff like that to, you know, keep one more puck out of the net. So, I, like I said, I know named after Ken Dryden. Wear mm-hmm. number twenty nine. I'm assuming in honor of him. Um, not a bad one to pick, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Who were the guys though? As you started that process and you're watching the games, were there any guys that you like to watch more than others, and why? Yeah, I mean, I think I think every goalie my age is going to tell you Carey Price. He was the most dominant goalie when I was a teenager, and most fun to watch. That was when he won the Vesna. He was, you know. Team Canada, everything. Um, I think Ryan Miller, when he won uh, or when he took USA to silver in the Olympics, is probably one of the greatest goaltending performances I've ever seen, along with, uh, you know, Jonathan Quick won the Con Smite that one year. That was crazy. So other than that, I think now that I'm older, it's, you know, I try to watch the smaller guys. I try to watch, you know, a, a UC Saros as much as I can. Uh, Nadelkovich, Grubauer is a really good one to watch with his feet. Um, these guys that are, you know, six foot, six one, but, um, having success in the NHL and and showing that you know it's possible. Now, one of the things you talked about with Brandon is understanding your size relative to the net. What was that process like? We hear a lot, you know, like phrases like box control and you know things that you know the idea that you don't need to worry about the six by four behind you. You just have to control the area that it's got to get through in front of you. Was that part of your process of you know again it it all comes back to positioning too, but understanding you didn't need to be aggressive, understanding how to control that smaller box. Was that a phrase? Was that a technique that you were introduced to and, and how did it help? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if he exactly calls it box control, but it's the same idea. Um, you know, especially I think a big thing is hand trajectory. 
if you can cut off, you know, if you can cut off that angle that the puck has with, you know, forward hands and a forward chest and, and that type of thing, um, you can do yourself a lot of favors as far as taking up more net. But um, Brennan, actually, he made me, he made me smaller than that. He narrowed up my stance. I think, you know, I was always, like I said, watching hockey and seeing these big goalies with their big wide stances and thinking, oh, that's how I got to play. But then you realize once he kind of tinkered with it a little bit, if you the narrower stance gives you way more power and way more um, balance, especially on recoveries. So he actually narrowed up my stance, which I think made a huge difference. Um, it's, it's really uncomfortable. He, you know, I, I tried to explain it to my goalie partners this year as freshmen and they, you know, it's, it's a work in progress still for me. You know, there's, there's that instinct that goalies have with the butterfly that as soon as you see a guy loading up to take a shot, everybody's feet, you know, set and they set wide so that you're ready to snap down. But when you, when you widen out your feet, you bring your shoulders down. And for me, that's obviously really important to keep my shoulders up and stay as upright as I can. So I think if you were to look at my stance from probably the beginning of my college career until the end of my college career, I'd probably look hopefully a little bit taller because I was, I was way narrower with my feet. And I think that helped a lot with my um, agility and um, you know, just my overall game. Well, like you said, as soon as you go low and wide, um, you know, I've goalie coaches up here that always talk about too, too low, too wide, too soon, right? You're in a game that's become increasingly East West, even if Minnesota state, as you said, was good at, sort of limiting laterals, if you get locked in low and wide, you can't move. Like you said, there's no, if, if your legs are already spread apart, what are you pushing with? Where's the power? How do you get rotation? So it, it's real easy for me to say um, that that's a good thing, but it's hard to sometimes put into play. What was the adjustment like? Did you have to trust that if you were higher and narrower, you could still get to the ice easily and in time all the time? Was that a process you had to go through? Yeah, I think mentally, mentally, you kind of, especially in practice, when you're just getting shot after shot after shot, it's easier to just set your feet wide and just keep dropping up and down. So I think that was the hard part at first was in practice and just kind of trusting that, you know, when your feet are narrow like that, it feels like when you drop, you're going to be in, you know, a 1980s butterfly with your with your heels together because you're so narrow. But really, when you're there, you're going to drop faster and your pads are going to be in the same spot. And if your knees are together, it makes it much easier to rotate to the rebound. So just kind of tinkering with it. I can't say I'm perfect with it. There's still times when, you know, you see a guy taking a wide open shot and you get so mesmerized and you just want to be so big that you set your feet. But the more narrow you can be, the more agile you'll be. And I think that's that's probably the biggest change in my game that's made the best, the biggest difference. Is it is is and I I have no idea if this is how you feel, but like, is it? more relaxed in the narrow stance like that that low and wide and and i i locked in is probably not the the right word but there's that tension you know like we we when we feel that shot i know exactly what you mean you feel like you got to go get it and you get sort of worked up for it but tension just locks you up even further whereas that narrower sort of like you can sort of feel a little more relaxed with the hands like you said out front versus getting sort of uh, I hesitate to use this term, but James Reimer always used to use this one. He's like, ah, I just got too horny on that one. I just wanted to go like, just get, I got to go get yeah. it. Right. Like that, trying yeah, to fight that mean. sensation. Yeah, I think exactly. I mean, I think, I think it's just, it just comes back to being an athlete. You know, it's a, it's an athletic stance If your feet are under your shoulders. You're going to be at your max, you know, athletic ability. If your feet are out wide and you're so forward and so low, if you got to turn and make a push, it's going to take, you know, some readjusting, which is going to waste time. So I think it was just more about, you know, being in an athletic position as possible. 
so that no matter what happens, whether puck gets deflected to the back door or something like that, you don't have to waste movements getting to a position where you're ready to recover. And I think if you can eliminate that time and, and like I said before, beat plays, it doesn't matter how big you are because you're going to be in the right position. So many great lessons there, Dryden. Um, I, I don't want, I've already kept you way past longer, which is a bad habit of mine than I said I would. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, what, what's next for the summer? Um, what, like, how do you, how do you roll out your summer heading into next season? Um, that's a good question. You know, the last, the last four summers have been kind of laid out for me at school here with, with summer school and summer training. And, you know, now I'm on my own. So, um, hoping to, uh, hoping to figure out, I got to figure out where I'm going to work out first. And then, um, I think I might be staying around Minnesota, Minneapolis area. Um, there's supposed to be, there's going to be some good skates and, and Brennan's out of Minneapolis. So hopefully get to skate with him this summer and, and figure things out from there. Now, I almost forgot there was one, one little bit of a cautionary tale that you wanted to share. Uh, obviously made some headlines after the Hobie Baker um, with uh, a positive test resulting from just contaminated uh, supplements you were taking. Uh, didn't want to make it the focus, but there's some lessons here. Um, yeah. Can you share for, for young kids that are, you know, because like you said, off seasons, gyms, we're looking for nutritional supplements, sometimes just to you know, try and keep ourselves healthy, avoid a cold, avoid COVID, like just, you know, trying to load up with vitamins. You learned a lesson. Can you share that story with us? Yeah. So uh, back in January, when the NHL pulled out of the Olympics, they announced their team of college players mainly and, and some pro guys. And uh, I was super lucky to be a, an alternate. So I was the fourth goalie. Um, if one of the three other goalies got COVID, injured, whatever, I was going so I was treated like an Olympian. So I was getting um, one of the things was I had to get drug tested by um, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, which is USADA. Long story short, they came, tested me, um, didn't think anything of it. Then all of a sudden I get a call a week later. Hey, you tested positive for Osterine, um, which is a, it's called a SARM. It's, it's a steroid, I, basically, as far as I understand it. And basically, long story short, you are suspended until further notice. So obviously I freaked out okay. and uh, I was put, put in touch with a lawyer and some other people um, to help me with the situation and immediately had all my stuff, all my supplements. You know, I was taking a one a day, a fish oil, you know, my protein um, and this other vitamin D supplement that I had recently began taking. Uh, it was all sent to a lab, tested, and they found the source of the contamination. It was that vitamin D supplement that I had just begun taking. It had, you know, microscopic millions of a gram of level of osterine in it so since we were able to find the source um it shows that it was contamination and not intentional and, and we're talking like i think you said millionth like i read it as like a trillionth of like yeah. we are talking like beyond like even maybe on beyond microscopic like just infinitesimal traces yeah. that had been yeah. contaminated in your supplements so it doesn't take much no it was i think i found out throughout the process that they had just recently gotten the technology to even test as low as, you know, my stuff was detected, um, I think within the last three years. So um, obviously it was, it, it was so low, it provided no benefit. It, I wasn't doping. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't taking this supplement or this uh, steroid on purpose. It was contamination. So once they saw that, uh, they let me play the rest of the year, but I knew that uh, as soon as the, the year ended, um, I was going to have to face that suspension. And um, yeah. So after the frozen four, uh, immediately got in touch with the lawyer. He talked to, um, USADA and I think my, 
sanction was supposed to be between, you know, the, the situation warranted something between four and 10 months suspension. Um, we settled on six months, which allows me to be ready to compete in a game um, October 11th. And I can begin practicing um, in August, August 25th. So, so you get to, you get to go, get to go to camp with Toronto yeah, and, I can and go to sort camp of start and, your season. Yeah, I can go to camp and, and play exhibition games and, and stuff like that, which is big. But yeah, I think the biggest lesson that I wanted to share with, you know, your listeners is be careful what you're taking. You know, something as innocent as a, a vitamin D immune booster um, was contaminated. Um, and I know I'm not the, the first person to experience something like this. I know there's there's plenty of athletes out there that that have, you know, had to have that phone call and, and that that deal with that situation of, you know, you're just trying to do what's best for your body. And there's so many people out there telling you to take all these different things to, to help you perform and give you that, you know, that, that extra step or that extra benefit or whatever, but um, just be careful. The, the supplement industry is not, not really regulated at all. They can kind of put in whatever they want. So um, just do your research and, and know what you're taking. Cause you know, my, the product that tests positive for Austrian, Austrian is illegal in the United States. So um, it wasn't on the ingredients list and, and technically, you know, it's illegal for it to be in there. So yeah, she never should have been in there. And like you said, yeah. such infinitesimal, like the NCAA knew you played the whole season. It's not like yeah. there was ever any question about intent here just mm-hmm. because it's the Olympics. And that means it's WADA. It's not only do they test to the nth degree, they, they suspend to the nth degree. They have to, they feel like they have to follow through, even though there's no intent. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that lesson. Uh, it's a good one for young kids because, like you said, we're heading into an off season where you know they will be running into try this, do that. Um, this will help you recover, things like that. And it is important important to be care- to be careful with that. Tough for you, like like you know, I, tough to have the focus after such a remarkable year, even if it's briefly. Be a part of of the conversation. How have you dealt with it mentally? Because. Um, I, I, I feel from the outside, like it would be frustrating. You've accomplished all these things and then that becomes part of the story rather than what I wanted to focus on today was this remarkable goaltender who's had this incredible career at college and and is now about to embrace a pro one. I think the immediate impact, I think, you know, I think the second half of the year, I thought I played with a little bit more focus, honestly, because I knew that you kind of had that, that near death experience where I was if I hadn't found the contamination, I was looking at a, a four-year ban, which, you Oof. know, that would have been tough. I, I couldn't have played anywhere, so almost career-ender. But I think I played with a new um, a new sense of purpose. I, I valued every day um, at the rink that I had and kind of realized how much of a blessing it was. And, and after the season, you know, I think um, it sucked that it had to become public, honestly. Um, but that's that's just their policy is they have to release a statement um, it happened to be on Twitter from USADA. So once we found that out, um, I, I prepared a statement. Um, I didn't want to hide anything. I have nothing to hide. Um, and just kind of now, like I said, use it as a lesson, um, put it behind me. And, and hopefully I can, you know, put this in the, put this in the past and, and begin my pro career with, without having to, to deal with, with anything like this ever again. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to answer that. Cause I do think there is a valuable lesson and we do have a lot of parents and young goalies that listen to this. Um, and it's important that they consider some of those things. So thanks for that. Um, but like I said, I want to focus on the career. Uh, I, I can't wait to watch you in pro. Uh, nice that we've got a, uh, if, if, assuming it'll start in the American League, we've got an American Hockey League franchise back here in the lower mainland in Vancouver, finally. So I'm looking forward to getting to meet you in person next year. 
Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. There were so many great takeaways um, for goalies of all sizes, but some great advice on managing uh, the game when you're not six foot four. Uh, Dryden, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this, and I look forward to watching your career and, and touching base as it goes on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Matthew Hutchison. I'm sorry. I don't know why I named you Matthew. Should have been Dryden. I know a Dryden who's a goaltender. I know a goaltender who named his son Dryden. We now have met another Dryden goaltender. I followed Dryden growing up, and I named you Matthew. Love your name, son. You're a fantastic goalie, but I think I dropped the ball here, didn't I, Woody? Yeah, there's benefits to naming your son Dryden when he's a good goaltender because, like you said, named after Ken Dryden, wears number 29 for Ken Dryden. May have been the only guy who didn't get weirded out when I ended the interview and took off my sweater (laughs) and rolled up my sleeves to show him my Ken Dryden tattoo. Probably the only guy I could do that to and not just completely freak him out. Like, why is this guy on the other end of a Zoom call that's interviewing That's probably me, why Ken's his, never phoned you. He's probably weirded clothing. out by it. Yeah, but the benefit is he has actually heard from the one and only the legend, Ken Very Dryden. Cool. Uh, after he broke the NCAA shutout record this year, he got an email. And again, uh, after he won the Hobie Breaker, Ken reached out by email with some uh, some really thoughtful messages, evidently. And so just... Yeah, kind kind of a cool story. Uh, like I said, a, a really cool story for I think uh, a, a young goalie who probably made a lot of fans with that interview. He made a fan in me of me, um, out of me through that interview, and I think a lot of young goalies and parents probably listening to that uh, heard some things that they can help them with their game. Probably heard some things that they can keep in mind moving forward, and probably heard some things that'll have them following his career and cheering him on as he moves his way up the ranks, starting with the Toronto Marlies. I love the interviews with the young guys that are just coming up. Um, you know, as cool as it is to to meet with a goaltender who's playing at the top of the game today, the ones who are still on the way up, they just seem more open than anybody else, more maybe more connected to what's brought them up in the game and more comfortable sharing that maybe because they haven't had to face Kevin Woodley in the locker room every night for 10 years. Uh, just another Asking stupid interview. questions. What's that? Yeah, no, it was, it was asking stupid questions. They haven't tired of me quite yet. No, he was he was great, patient. Yeah, no, they're so good though. Patient, like I said, over forty minutes of time, and you know, um, we do touch a lot of bases here. We, you know, we have a we. I, I think at times at Ingle, we have you know clearly an NHL focus and blessed to have access to NHL guys. Um, but it is a good reminder, like Strauss Mann, uh, Dryden McKay. We've got Devin Levi coming up, who who won the Mike Richter Award as the top goalie in NCAA hockey. That's a that was a weird one with Dryden winning the best player in college hockey and Devin getting the best goalie. Um, but we're all for that. We're okay because give all the awards to all the goalies. Like, like let's yeah. just have pri- well, and, prizes for all the goalies. I like that. And they're voted on by different people and the criteria yeah, are a yeah, little bit different. Yeah, 100%. So, so um, no criticism of the decision-making. I Like I said, I'm all for it. More goalies, more awards, all the better. But again, like we know what this conversation is going to be like with Devin, another guy that just has such a passion for the game and is going to try everything he can if he thinks it will make him better. And so I think a lot of that came out in Strauss. I think a lot of that comes out in Dryden. And boy, isn't it exciting for the future of the position when you've got guys who treat it the way um, that that those three, for example, do. And we're so blessed to have built a little platform here where they feel comfortable talking so openly about the evolution of their game and what they're working on and what they're trying to do. 
Um, but they're also so generous with their time to share it because they know that there are other young goalies listening to it. Sometimes we hear it a lot on the way to the rink with their parents listening to the Ingle Radio podcast. Um, and if they think they that something they say will resonate with someone and help them get better, they're happy to share it. And that was one of the reasons that we wanted to tag on that little conversation about the positive um, test that he ran into this year because he was part of that Olympic program. Uh, as you heard him explain, like completely accidental, contaminated supplement. It was a vitamin D supplement for cry, crying out loud. It wasn't even a performance oh, yeah. enhancing thing. It was just a, can I stay healthy and avoid COVID and, 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 you know, seasonal colds right now by having more vitamin D and it was contaminated and just a really good lesson there. And we didn't want that to be the focal point. I, it was kind of frustrating to me, you know, as I was prepping for the interview, when I Googled Dryden's name, that was the first thing that came back in every search. And so that's the hot topic surrounding him right now. But I wanted to make sure the interview was about this this really impressive young man and goaltender. And at the same time, he wanted to make sure we did talk about it as well so that any young goalie listening could sort of, you know, think twice or or be aware that this can happen to you, even on something as innocent and of a, as a vitamin D supplement, um, a substance that's not even supposed to be in the country, country let alone accidentally in a vitamin D supplement, happens to be in his no way of knowing. And if he doesn't do the homework to prove it, uh, like he said, he could have been looking at a career killer ban of up to four years. Um, but they were able to prove it. The ban is short and he'll be on the ice with the Toronto Marlies when things start in the fall. And I can't wait to follow along. Such important advice because we've had a number of kids billet with us over the years. Uh, you know, our son plays and all his buddies. I'm not sure that I've seen one yet that doesn't have a few supplements on the shelf and they're attempt to become better. So I think that's some of the best stuff we've gotten out of this. Just to be clear, uh, two things. Everybody who tests positive, not everybody, so many people who test positive in competition come up with the, it must be a tainted sample. It must have been something I took. That's really what happened in this case. It's not an excuse. They tested independently, not the stuff that he was taking, but the same company's product and were able to show that indeed it was tainted. And what was in his system was a minuscule amount that the NCAAs acknowledged couldn't possibly do anything to enhance his performance. So I just want that really clear. Yeah, yeah. And as he told us, the amount was so minuscule, in fact, that the U.S. Uh, drug testing uh, group had only recently gotten the technology to even detect that small of a trace, I believe it was a like a trillionth of a gram um, type 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 of number, like something that like two years ago, they couldn't have even detected. That's how small it was. And as you said, they tested his sample. But of course, somebody could, I guess, in theory, dump contaminated stuff and say, hey, it's contaminated. Exactly, yeah. So they went out and got source of the same batch from the same company, had that tested and it too contained this substance that is 100% not supposed to be in there, 100% not listed on any of the ingredients, and was enough to trigger a test despite also 100% having no effect or performance benefit for Dryden McKay. And then the other little bit I wanted to say is, um, I don't think many people out there realize, Woody, that when you see something on the internet, an article, uh, wherever that might be, the writer is rarely responsible for the headline that accompanies the article. That's usually an editor, correct? Yep. 
Yeah, and because that drives me crazy. You send me articles all the time with no headline, and I'm supposed to make something up, and I'm not the writer. Yeah, but so that I, and whenever our headlines suck at ingolmag.com, it's Hutch's fault, just for the record. It's my fault. Totally my fault. Everything's my fault. It's okay. Um, but I just wanted to make that point, because when I first found out about Dryden's test, I was kind of shocked by some of the headlines that were trying to grab attention, and I think they were wholly unfair to him. So, folks, as you're reading through headlines, especially if it's from a fine young goaltender, uh, or about a fine young goaltender, um, please click through and find out what's really going on in the story. Don't just assume from the headlines. Yeah, and and I guess, like I said, that was frustrating to me is that when I did the search to just to get back into his background and make sure I had some notes and was ready, you know, prepare. I, I like to pretend I'm a professional for these interviews and prayer. Um, <laughs> everyone, that was the lead on everyone. And I think you're right, whether it's headlines or the lead of the story, Sometimes even when the story was about different things, the headline was about that. And that's just the nature of the beast in terms of getting clicks. Um, and Dryden, Dryden deserves a lot better than that. So um, good for him for sort of making his way through that. We talked a little bit after the interview and, and after I showed him my tattoo and, 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 and the awkward silence dissipated. Um, we, talked <laughs> about, uh, we talked about how stressful it was. Because um, imagine, like you're a student athlete You've got enough on your plate as a student athlete. You're in your senior year, your team's rolling, and now you have this uncertainty. Even though you know you did nothing wrong, you have this uncertainty hanging over you. Um, just a ton of stress on him. And so, you know, again, we talk about things you can't see. You know, look at technique, look at skating. We talk about mental strength. Um, we talk about golf and goaltending and the ability to stay in the moment. The fact he was able to stay in the moment within games with that hanging over him while he was waiting for some of this feedback and some of the results and some of his appeals process to all play out to me is just another, we don't get to see between these guys ears. Truly. I've always said you look for signposts along the way in terms of how they handle adversity and how they handle situations. That'll tell you about their mental strength. Does their game change in big moments? Things like that. Uh, this one to me and his ability to handle this just checks that box. Um, even more so uh, when you're talking about Dryden McKay and his attributes, I would list mental strength as one of them having gone through this and come out on the other side uh, as well as he did. Outstanding interview. So much fantastic stuff in there. Dryden McKay, Hobie Baker winner is the top player in NCAA hockey this year and uh, now a professional goaltender in the Leafs organization. And I look forward to following his career as much as you do, Woody. Next week, Woody will be back from the golf course. And we, you'll, or he, you'll will be, be back from Kelowna. You'll be back from I'll Kelowna. I'll be back from Kelowna. That Everybody's won't take back. too long. And uh, you'll be joined by Kirk McLean. Kirk. And then the week after that, Devin Levi. We've got tons of great guests. So we're going to go from the, the young guys learning modern techniques. Kirk's going to walk us through two pad stacks and the proper way to execute it. And do these young guys, because we see it every once in a while. You know, the announcers, oh, you pa- stack Can the we pads. get them on the ice? Do you stack Can, can the we do pads? a pro drills? Pro drills with Kirk McLean. Stacking the pads. Well, as you'll hear next week from Kirk, the level of comfort on the ice is mostly as a forward these days. So there's a great story behind that. Uh, and we will get into it. And do today's goalies actually know how to stack the pads? We'll get into the, all of that next week with Kirk McLean. It's a fantastic interview. Um, love it when we throw it back with some of the old school guys who played in a different generation. But he has some fantastic insights on how the technique has changed, how the game has changed, how the gear has changed, as well as some great stories that uh, goalies of every age will be able to benefit from. Until then, he's Woody. I'm Hutch for Darren Millard, Cam Matwiv, and our friends at Sense Arena. 
Thank you for joining us again on the In Goal Radio podcast presented by the Hockey Shop Source for Sports and thehockeyshop.com. Oh, and if you're on a golf course in Oregon this weekend, keep your head up for In Goal Magazine golf balls out of bounds on the beach. They'll be on the gor- they'll be in the gorse. I'll hit it in the gorse. There's no trees, but yeah, much like our trips to Kelowna where you can find In Goal Magazine golf balls everywhere because Woody sprayed them out of bounds. There will be In Goal Magazine golf balls donated along the coastline of Oregon this weekend. For 